0: This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bellazoo, the amazing suppliers of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern ingredients. Their range includes premium olive oils and vinegars, pestos, pastes and preserved lemons. And if you haven't yet tried their signature rosarissa, which is a staple in my fridge, then you are in for a treat. Bellezue started 30 years ago when two friends, George and Adam, drove a van full of olives back from France. They began supplying chefs, then home cooks, and have never looked back. Bellazoo ingredients are restaurant quality and I've genuinely been a fan for a very long time. Their tahini from Nablus has a very special place in my kitchen shelf. It's so nutty and flavoursome. Their ingredients are such a simple way to enhance other flavours and they transform any dish. Bellazoo source and develop their products very carefully without compromising on quality and have gone above and beyond in their commitment to the environment and to looking after their suppliers. To find out more, go to Waitrose.com forward slash bellazoo to discover the range for yourself. Hi, I'm Yasmin Khan and you're listening to Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. Throughout the season, my co-host Alison Okavy and I are going to be talking to a range of fantastic guests from many walks of life and asking them to share their stories through the food memories, dishes and ingredients that mean the most to them.
1: Hi Yasmin, how are you? I'm good thanks Alison, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. I've been really inspired by today's guest and I've been digging out all her old cookbooks and cooking from them. I'm not surprised because our guest this week
0: is the wonderful Diana Henry, who. I think is
1: probably one of the most prolific recipe writers that I know. I say I mean she writes so many books, but also she's got a weekly column in Waitrose Weekend and within that she does a monthly menu for me. She's got her regular work in the Telegraph. So yeah, I'd agree with you. She is prolific in recipe writing and also just column inches. She just talks about food in such a really engaging way.
0: I know. We we actually both really wanted to have Diana on, didn't we? For this season of Life on a Plate. I think we're both such big fans of her work on so many levels. And, you know, so what what have you been inspired
1: by in terms of recipes? Well, we've got some a few family favourites. The one that we go to so often for midweek meals is her Moroccan chicken. It's chicken thighs and rice and onions and aubergines with harissa and, and loads of flavours and dates. The joy of it is it all goes in the oven together, raw. There's not even onion softened in the pan first. That's Diana's strength. She's got lovely flavours in even the most simplest and easiest of dishes.
0: She really does. And I think she brings that complexity, doesn't she? A- of flavor, but with recipes that are so easy to put together. Mm. I absolutely love, and we talked about this in the podcast, but I absolutely love her, her recipe for kind of roasted fennel with uh, roasted tomatoes and chickpeas. Another one just, you know, whack things in the oven uh, and it's one of my favorite ways of cooking. And the reason we wanted her on this season isn't just because we're both huge fans of her recipe writing, but also because earlier this year in what I think is one of the most moving and powerful personal essays that I've read. She wrote a piece in The Telegraph about some very uh, debilitating illnesses she's had over the last few years. And I think I just felt this was such a wonderful
1: opportunity to talk to someone about something that I think many people can relate to. That's right. Diana was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2019 and she underwent treatment for that. Uh, and just as she was recovering, she came down and developed the autoimmune disease, vasculitis, and that made her incredibly ill.
0: It did. And she ended up in ICU and on a ventilator fighting for her life in February, 2021, you know, and themes which the pandemic really brought to the forefront of all our minds. So I really wanted to talk to her about that. And knowing Diana, uh, knowing what an incredible spirit she has, um, it was wonderful to hear about some of the life lessons she'd gleaned from this incredibly tough period in
1: her life. That's right. But she talks so, about so much more, her childhood in Ireland, her beloved sons, her enormous cookery book collection, <laughs> and of course, her zest and passion for her work.
0: She really does. She's got so much energy uh, does Diana and we laughed so much and it was such an uplifting
1: conversation even though you know we covered some really you know profound themes. I so enjoyed it so let's get on with it. So here is our conversation with Diana Henry.
0: Henry, welcome to Life on a Plate. Thanks for
2: joining us. I'm very glad to be here because I haven't spoken to anybody for two weeks. All I've been doing is uh, testing Christmas recipes. So this is a kind of a thrill. Well,
0: Alison, you've known uh, Diana for quite a long time, haven't you?
1: I was trying to work out when the the first time I commissioned you. Was it like 15, 18 years ago? I think about 18 years ago. I can't believe that, actually.
2: But it doesn't feel like it at all. I always think of it as my newest gig. So I'm still excited about it. And I'm amazed that I can actually come up with things to say every week. <laughs> because every week like, what should I talk about this week? What am I going to write about this week? But you feel very connected to your audience writing for Waitress Weekend. And because you do it every week as well, you feel, oh, I'm just picking up the threads where I left off. Which is a really, it's, it's a really nice job from that point of view. It's a weekly conversation you're having with us. Kind of. And it, there's always something new. There's always kind of like a thought that you have and you have never really written about that aspect of food. And sometimes it's an ingredient. Sometimes it's just how a cook is formed, how a cook is made. I've been thinking about that. And um, and last night I wrote about cheesecake. You haven't even seen that yet. But there's always something, always something in the world of food that you want to write about. There is for you, isn't there?
0: We were talking this week as we were preparing for the interview about just what an incredibly prolific writer you are mm-hmm. a recipe writer at that, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. I think we want to, it's just incredible, Diana. I mean, or as someone who writes recipes myself, I don't know how you do it, but
1: we want to start, we want to start at the beginning, don't we, Alison? Start at the beginning where you grew up in Northern Ireland. I'm right in thinking your grandparents rather than your parents were farmers.
2: Yeah, my, my grandparents, my father's parents were farmers. My father worked in agriculture as well. And my mum was a teacher, um, but I lived, it was a very rural, I mean, completely rural upbringing and really, you know, absolutely entrenched in an agricultural world. So I knew always what was going on from the point of view of crops and the, milking the cows and the chickens whatever was going on I was really aware of it I really it's funny at this time of year I particularly feel sorry for my own kids because been brought up in a city all the time mm. and you know as it starts to get more Christmassy and it starts to get frosty in the mornings you don't really notice that in a city but you really do notice it in the countryside um because frost has a smell um, It's hard to describe, but it does smell. It and does. I rem- and I remember not just that, but kind of like walking along in the morning to the school bus stop and the trees, the bare trees would have, they would be sort of glittering as well because they had a coating of it. And it's a time, this is the time of you you start making, you know, in school paper chains and you get ready to do the Christmas pudding and things like that. And my children don't have the smells that go with that, not the natural smells. They just have, you know, the city and inside the home. So I'm glad I I am really glad I grew up in that. Although I'm very far away from it, and I left a long
1: time ago, but it it just doesn't leave you. No. So what was your first, your earliest food memory of that of that time?
2: Okay, what I really remember is my mum, who was she was baking all the time. She was always baking for school sales or church events or WI things. So she was either making cakes or she was making. What, what, what a Northern Ireland is called wheaten bread. It's like wholemeal soda bread, basically. And it doesn't ha- require any, um, yeast or or kneading or anything like that so you just make it you know with buttermilk in a bowl and then you put it in a in the loaf tin and then it comes out and i remember really clearly having slices of that sitting up on the kitchen counter beside mum with raspberry jam that'd be made by a family friend as well so i can remember it running off the the edges but that thing of warm bread and raspberry jam, which is really—I mean, barely set. To be honest with you, it was—it was delicious. But the other thing I remember is not a good memory. I can remember Mum trying always, and I never wanted it to eat mince and potatoes and onions and carrots. Oh, nice. And and she would say to me, which I should honestly really, when I look back, and you—you would have a call from social services for this these days. She would actually say if you don't eat your carrots, the crows will come and get you. And there were always <laughs> crows. There were always crows on the, you know, the kind of like telephone wires outside. And, and I just had this, visit, you know, image of myself being lifted by the shoulders of my pinafore and taken away by the crows. Oh, my God. I didn't want that to happen. But I did kind of like, funny enough, do you know, when I, the first time I was pregnant, that is the dish I craved. I made loads of mince of potatoes and carrots and wow. onions.
0: And oh. do you put any like herbs in that? What are the
2: flavorings? Oh, it was very, very plain. The only thing that everyone didn't into, which we thought at that stage was a little risqué, was some Worcester sauce. <laughs> I mean, Ooh, that was wow. it. But it is, that's very... As in Scotland, that's kind of what you're brought up on in Northern Ireland, Mm. Uh, you know, mince and tatties and, you know, carrots and onions all together. And it's a really comforting dish. I haven't made it for ages, actually. I don't know what my children would say if I gave it to them. They would probably say what Ted sometimes says is, what did you intend this to be? (laughs) (laughs) And I just, he's my eldest and I just say, supper, nothing more (laughs) than that. But the dishes that don't work, that's what he'll say. What were your intentions here, mum? And your palate changed or perhaps
0: got ignited more, didn't it, when you moved to London and you oh. described, obviously you read English at Oxford yeah. and then you came to London and you've I've heard you describe the culinary adventures you'd have, like running around the different bits of the town,
2: finding these ingredients. Can you describe some of that for us? My, it, just London just blew my mind completely because I mean, Oxford was kind of like, quite parochial in a way and I was able to get some um, ingredients but not everything but London compared to Northern Ireland where I grew up I mean, <laughs> I used to. I used to go to the Edgware Road just to be there, and I was able to get barberries and dates, and you couldn't get pomegranate molasses in those days, not in a supermarket. Mm, it's only something that's recent. Well, I know it is, and so is kind of preserved lemons. But those are all the, those are the things that I find. I remember kind of like looking at sacks of pistachios and stuff like that, and yeah. barberries. So all of these things were available, and I just felt that I'd come to London, but basically. I was in this massive world. So I go to Ridley Road to get um, feta cheese because they had a lot, there was was a Turkish place there that had a lot of different kinds of feta. So I, I my, my weekends, I used to get exhausted basically by shopping. So I would go to get these ingredients and I would plan my weekly meals. There wasn't really anything that I was not able to cook. Everything was available.
0: Well, I think you've described before how we can travel through our kitchens. And I think your recipes so often demonstrate that, actually, because you can just see all the different influences that you've amassed and how you put them together. So the first one, Crazy Water Pickled Lemons, you've mm. kind of described some of those Middle East and North African influences of when you first came to London. Yeah. Um, but then they go on to, you know, really, really varied things, whether it's Scandinavian food, whether it's kind of you know, a change of appetite and lighter eating, bird in the hand, which was just about chicken. chicken. Such a great idea. I'm just thinking about some recent ones now. So How to Eat a Peach was about menus. I mean, these are very unique approaches to writing about food. And I wanted to know,
2: where do you find the themes for your books? Where do they come from? They Honestly, I just want to write them. Salt, Sugar, Smoke. I was quite surprised that that got commissioned in a way because basically I'd always done a bit of preserving. And I basically thought, I want to re- learn how to do this really properly. And the book, the book was the journey of learning how to do that. But that's what happens. Things come up. And I think, oh, I'd really like to learn about that. I'd really like to know about that. I mean, I think, well, we're lucky. If you write cookbooks, as you know, Yasmin, you can you can educate yourself while you're doing them. Yeah. And we're very lucky to get paid for that. Yeah. Um, but it's always, I kind of just get completely immersed in a culture or cultures or a particular approach or even an ingredient, which, which chicken was about. But my aim is always to go places as well. I'm interested in what's happening everywhere. And I think that's because I grew up in such a very kind of small place in the countryside in Northern Ireland. And I didn't leave the country till I was 15. And that was to go on that trip to France to do a, a school exchange. Um, but we, when I was little, I mean, it's, it makes me sound ancient and it also makes Northern Ireland seem kind of like, oh my God, was it completely backward? But when we went to Dublin on holidays, we used to go to the airport to watch the planes taking off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is just, I mean, I'm not that old actually, but that's what we did. There were four kids and my mom and dad, and we, it was so expensive to get anywhere on a plane. We just had to watch them rather than get onto them. And I hadn't been on a plane um, until that first trip. And then I was on my own. And um, it's it's really fun because I was going to France, so I was excited about that. But, you know, as we took off and then got into the clouds, I was like, nobody told me how beautiful this would be. Um, It was just so gorgeous. It was evening light. And by the time I got to Paris, it was dark by the time I met the family that I was going to stay with. But traveling was just something I could only think about. And I think since I've been able to do it, I've just like wanted to gobble the world up.
0: Well, I think that passion comes across in your writing, because even though you're not, I don't know, technically a food and travel writer. I feel that when I read your books, they absolutely all the recipes have a sense of place and the stories whisk you away somewhere. So you do it
2: so magically, Diana. Well the book I'm doing at the minute as well, it's it's been it's called North and it won't be out till two thousand and twenty four. But I've been working on that on and off for 20 years Mm. and that was because I got well I got obsessed with northern regions you know Scandinavia and Iceland and places like and even Germany and places like that because I thought we were so immersed in Mediterranean stuff and we have been we have been that for a long time and I suddenly thought what's wrong with the stuff on our doorstep what's wrong with stuff from up there and um Also, my dad, he used to come home. If he'd been on any kind of trip for work, he would bring back pickled herrings. So he'd bring these, he'd bring a jar out and they they look so silvery and so beautiful. I got a taste then that I wanted to go to Mm. this place. So as soon as it, it was possible to actually fly to Stockholm, like costing an arm and a leg, but there I was I went to you're actually Denmark was the first I went to I went to Denmark.
0: I think this is such a good point because you're right Mediterranean certainly Middle Eastern in recent years they're, they're, those flavors have dominated you know obviously the Indian subcontinent but i would I reckon if you ask most people about you know the flavors and ingredients from some of the countries that you're going to explore in north, they actually wouldn't be able to tell you so why don't you tell us
2: what what are the flavors from this region well there's kind of there's root vegetables. Um, so they're a kind of like Cornish stone and that sounds boring, but it isn't. So beetroot, we've only started to really, we've, we've only recently stopped pickling it and actually decided <laughs> to eat it as a, as a proper vegetable. So that was one of the things that struck me first, dill cardamom in their pastries and in their breads mm. Oh, those lovely oh food, yeah. caraway seeds i love caraway which is more germanic than it is scandinavian um in iceland licorice would you believe mm. um, and, and things me when i was in i've had a lot of trips now to iceland i really love it and you think quite a lot about texture when you're there because texture is just a very key thing in the landscape so you start thinking about it with food as well and Mm -hmm. there they use quite a lot of barley and there's oats and there's rye and stuff like that and they're obsessed with rhubarb. Rhubarb is a big thing there and all of those northern countries they love summer berries because they don't get that many of them and they get them quite late and it's kind of it's they do ripen but they're just not used to kind of having the abundance of them that we do even in the UK actually or in Scotland. So Yeah, there are things that obsess them there. I'm trying to think of any more ingredients. Well, herring, definitely herring. And lots of fish, I guess. Yeah, as I was going to say, kind of like crab, lobster, cod and salmon. Oh my goodness. Well, the first time I went to Sweden in the summer, I just couldn't believe how often that your meal was simply, especially if you went to see people, um, it was salmon with some sour cream with dill stirred into it and um, roast roast or boiled beets
1: on the side. The thing that always impresses me Diner is is the way you use those flavors and then layer them. Mm. And I'm thinking to the "How to Eat a Peach" book. You did that fantastic roast tomato with fennel and chickpeas. Oh yes, I so make dessert. that so you much. And honey dish. It is delicious because you you've got coriander in it. You've got balsamic the and honey. Got harissa there's, and there's honey preserved lemons and as well. I think preserved lemons of that. And you think that's not going to work, but it's amazing. No. Well, I think it's not everything
2: works, but most things do. When I was doing it last night, actually, because I was doing it ideas for, um, the wind, the winter months coming up for the telegraph and you think of things, you think, will that work? Yes, probably. You don't know until you really make it. And sometimes things do go wrong, but mostly I kind of can taste it in my head. And that's how you, that's how you come up with it. But that, that's what cooks are like. It's quite a talent though. It definitely is. <laughs> now, Diana, I've been dying to
0: ask you about this immense cookbook collection that I hear that you've amassed. Is it
2: true that you've got 4,000 cookbooks? Yes, I do have. Yeah, but I do, <gasps> do you know what? 4,000? I, 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 <laughs> I don't know a lot of them are anymore. When it was kind of about half this size, I used to be able to think exactly where they were and they were kept very you know very properly the baking was all together countries were all together then things like you know vegetables fruits they all had their you know different sections wow that's very organized yeah but not now now there's i think i do have to get rid of some because i lose things like i've got three different copies of alan davidson's north atlantic seafood because i keep losing (laughs) it I remember where i've put it there are, there's a there's a whole bookcase in here there's a kind of office upstairs which is lined with them as well although there's lots of fiction up there too there's some in the front room there's some i took the ones that were in the downstairs cloakroom i took it off because I, <laughs> I thought that was too much to cope with and um, i have them in my bedroom in fact i've got stacks and stacks all the books about north are up in my bedroom all stacked wow. beside each other for the um, And then I look at them and I think, oh my God, you're never going to get through all of these before you have to actually finish writing this.
0: This year, Waitrose and John Lewis are continuing their work with Fair Share and Homestart to help support families in need at Christmas. The partnership will donate £1 million to these and other local charities, and it's easy for you to give too. Just visit waitrose.com forward slash love. Together, we can make a real difference to families in need. To find out more, including full terms and conditions, please go to waitrose.com forward slash love. You're such an exquisite writer. So I'm always interested in asking people who are good writers, you know, who are the writers that you, you know, really are drawn to? You know, who do you recommend people should read?
2: Oh well when i started the people were Claudia Roden and Jane Grigson i mean Claudia Roden she was the first person i discovered who really wrote about food in a cultural context i mean i mean Jane Grigson did it as well but she's different her you know, she doesn't she she uses poetry she uses travelogue, she's kind of uses memoir she uses you know, it's quite scholarly research about the background to particular ingredients. Um, but Claudia, I was just like, Oh my god, she really took me places. I mean, I I bought her book of Middle Eastern food as soon as I moved to London and I had a little basement flat and there was a turkey shop at the end of the road, and I found her book in the bookshop near me, and my granny had sent me some birthday money and that's what I used it for so I bought Claudia's book and then I took it home and I didn't and I started reading it immediately in the sitting on the sofa in the basement flat I didn't even notice it getting dark and (laughs) by the time I kind of looked up I was reading by practically no light except for the lamppost outside and I think I was having by that stage of the book was having tea with Claudia's or coffee even with Claudia's (laughs) aunts um in Cairo And I just thought I, I, this was a completely new thing to me. And I didn't think I want to be that kind of writer because I didn't, I was working in television. I didn't think I was going to be a writer at all. But I think that they're the biggest influences on me, Claudia Roden and Jane Grigson.
0: Well, I think your writing spans so many different genres, don't they? Even though you're not a travel writer. As I said, I think your writing has a sense of place. Obviously you write incredible recipes. And then earlier this year, you wrote, I think one of the most. Moving pieces I've, I've read actually in a very long time, um, in the Telegraph. And it was chronicling, uh, a difficult few years for you, oh. you know, uh, to put it mildly, I know, but, um, you know, your diagnosis with breast cancer and then the, the chemotherapy and radiotherapy that followed from that. Yeah. And then just when, you know, you were doing well, the, the kicker of getting a,
2: a autoimmune disease, which was uh, but- worse. Honestly, it's, um, called anchor positive vasculitis and it's it is very dangerous and with that you ended up
0: didn't you at a time that you know it's all been in the headlines hasn't it we've all been aware of oh, ventilators and ICU well you ended up there I did in the, earlier this year so I guess
2: I, I just wanted to ask how how are you you know how are you now and oh, I'm fine the vas autoimmune diseases you can't cure them so you mm. have to try and manage them and I'm still in the space where the consultants are trying to get on top of it. I mean, we hope that I will never have to go into the ICU again because mm. that was real shock and they didn't see it coming. And I didn't know what to look out for basically because I'd only been diagnosed a couple of weeks before um, and I was on steroids and they thought enough steroids. But then I just started coughing up blood um, and I felt awful. I thought I had COVID actually. I came downstairs mm. and said to both my children who were sitting at the table, I just feel awful. Do you think this is COVID? After that, I can't remember anything because um, basically I think I collapsed. I was coughing up more blood. My lungs were hemorrhaging and um, Ted called an ambulance and um, I was taken to the Royal Free because they have a rheumatology um, team there. And I don't remember anything then until I was kind of coming round because I was under for quite a long time and the drugs are so strong. I mean, that's the worst bit of it, to be honest with you. The drugs are so strong that you um, have delusions the entire time. In fact, you're still pretty out of it um, when you're taken onto the kind of, um, you know, the next ward down, which is not ICU anymore. And when I came home even, which was five weeks later, I was still confused. I couldn't, I didn't know how to use the, Toaster, that kind of thing. But I no longer was in that horrible world because my, you don't, you don't know whether these were dreams. You don't know whether they were imaginings. You don't know whether there were things that you believed when you were awake. I have no idea. But <clears throat> the world that I was in, I thought I had been um, kidnapped by terrorists, which I know sounds ridiculous, but I it was horrible. And in the dream, I thought they also, they, they kidnapped Ted at the same time and they, oh, they oh. shot him. <laughs> So I didn't know in my mind whether he was alive or not the whole time I was in the ICU. In fact, when, when they tried to get me to phone Ted, when I came onto the kind of like normal ward, mm-hmm. I was very worried about doing it because I thought I don't, I don't want them to try and kidnap me anymore if he did something that caused that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, you think yeah. I thought in some ways it was it was like it must be like what people feel like maybe when they when they start when they get dementia and people yeah. won't believe them and they think this thing is so true but you can it's very frustrating because you can't get anybody to take you seriously. Um, I felt like you feel like a, you feel much older. You feel much older and you feel things are out of your control.
0: And I remember you said to me that you you actually started
2: writing, didn't you? Well, I do you know what? One of the first things that helped was I started to have dreams about the North Book. I know that seems <laughs> ludicrous, but I started to dream it and every night in my dream men, I would go back to the same point on the page of the computer the laptop that I was working on and I'd start on the next bit. And um I would be I mean, when it, when it, when it kind of like, when I came and cried it all out, it it was not garbled, but kind of like not quite the right structure. But that's where I structured the book in those dreams before I left the hospital. And I was really happy when I started. I mean, by the end, when I had about two weeks before I came home, I just said to Ted, oh, please just bring me an A4 pad and lots of pens. And, um, and that, that I started to write about the North book and, um, to think about the recipe not the recipes, but the dishes that were going to go into it and the chapters that were going to go into it and how to organize it. I mean, I'd already done quite a lot of this before I'd gone into hospital, but it seemed to be very important to me. It's, I think it's to do with, with, um, categorizing stuff and getting control mm. and writing stuff
1: down. So you have this, something has a shape because nothing else had a shape. No, nothing else was in your control at all. Not at all. Because it was in the height of lockdown. So, you know, Ted couldn't pop in and see you or visit because hospitals were in lockdown. And you'd also made a decision when you got diagnosed with cancer initially Mm. that it was going to be on a very much a need to know basis because I remember you you told me because of your column yeah i knew that that was it for some reason i thought that
2: was incredibly personal i'm not a very Mm. um i don't make a big deal about privacy at all but i thought that was i don't know it seemed to go to the heart of you to be diagnosed with with cancer i know other people other people kind of like talk a lot about it immediately and they're on social media talking about it i don't understand that at all Mm. Um, i really didn't want the attention i wanted just to get to get on with it I didn't want sympathy I didn't want people's feeling sorry for me especially if it wasn't sincere I wasn't frequent with the oh oh per you I've had that with two close
0: friends who've had cancer and they had this I mean I think everyone deals with things their own way don't they yes, but they were the same and they were like we're telling you you're not allowed to tell anyone I can't be dealing with people's sympathy or pity I can't deal with no. putting on a brave face to make other people feel no less sad and and it was hard, but it, it's completely understandable. And obviously, so many, so many of us now—you know, pretty much everyone <laughs> knows someone you who know, have been touched by cancer. doesn't Well,
2: we? one in every two of us are gonna gonna have it. And I, I mean, I've heard about three people in the last two weeks. So it's a big club, absolutely. And it, but I thought that's what made your piece so
0: powerful, actually, because I think it's really worth reminding people that sometimes. It can be exhausting
2: just trying to deal with your own reaction to someone else being ill. Yeah. I mean, I find dealing with cancer actually quite... And because uh, I saw the positive things about it and then I went to have chemo every week and that meant I had a day off. So I used to kind of look mm. forward to it because I tried to kind of like do work while I was having having the chemo input, but I could never do it. I could never manage it, not with the cold cap, because I had the thing that you put on that stops your, well, it's supposed to help stop your hair falling out. How did chemo affect your sense of taste? Oh my God. Well, it did very different things at different stages. At first, um, things were really muffled, and that was interesting. I could – I mean, I would just be – I would get – quite crazed um, about trying to find things that tasted strong enough. So I'd be standing mm. in the door of the fridge and it'd be raspberries, um, dulce um, herring, <laughs> um, anything that was really, really strong because th- that's what it needed t- to come through. Then it changed after a while and I had this awful thing for a period where it felt like there was kind of like a bird's nest of twigs in my throat, oh, everything oh. that went down would feel it, it would kind of like, it would hurt there. And then my my mouth got bad as well. My tongue got very sore. My tongue has not completely recovered, but um, chilies were awful. Chilies were awful. So any kind of, so the opposite thing happened. Anything strong then was difficult and I needed blander stuff. And at one stage I couldn't even really swallow water. It felt too thin. So if I was thirsty, I drank milk because the fattiness, I think made it um just softer to go down yeah. my throat. But they gave me things to kind of like deal with this, including these absolutely ghastly aniseed flavoured jellies that I had to that I had to drink before I had a meal. And um it was it was kind of awful. I mean I kept I kept testing recipes and I kept cooking the whole time. <laughs> um and sometimes I had to get the the kids to do it, or I would say to um uh, Valerie who always shoots my um recipes for the te- telegraph I would say like okay I might not have enough K N in that because I was too scared to use more mm. or it would be the opposite thing and I'd say I think this is too powerful so just see what your taste buds make of it um but yeah I kept going and I never stopped being interested in food but it became something I had to think about more than I really wanted to if you know what I mean since you've
1: had your diagnosis have you changed your diet
2: when when I came home from the hospital, actually, after the um, autoimmune disease, I did start eating a lot more healthily. It was an awful lot of fruit and vegetables. And I just did that because I thought, OK, I've been really ill twice now. And it's just something you can do. I didn't do it in a very considered way. I didn't go on and look at oh, what you should eat if you've got an autoimmune disease. Mm. I just I just started, I decided to eat less bread, less cheese, more vegetables, more fruit and quite a lot of protein. And that's the thing that really changed.
0: It's been an extraordinary uh, few years for you, and you've had to deal with some real existential questions. I think throughout it, mm. I don't know. It's hard to ask this question without sounding glib, but go on, you know, go what, ahead. I'm, I'm going to go for it anyway. Uh, look, what? What do you think you've learned from it or how
2: how has it all changed you? I think that I definitely, and this goes back to when I was in hospital after the surgery for cancer, and my sister said to me, what do you want to do when you go home? I mean, she she thought maybe i you know, do I want to go out for dinner? Did I want to do this? Did I want to do that? And I just said, I want to feel the sun on my face. Mm. And that's what you really feel. The thing I kept thinking about when I was in the hospital at that time was the sound of a breeze through trees, you know, when it ripples like that. And I really, I thought to myself, I hadn't paid enough attention to those things. And the first time I walked um up to the shops quite near me when I got home, I realized mm-hmm. that I hadn't looked upward enough. And there were trees that I hadn't noticed before because mm-hmm. I'm a very focused person and that's really good for work. It's not good for necessarily life. Mm-hmm. You have to be looking and you have to be, I mean, it's a very happy phrase these days, but you have to kind of be in the moment. And I think I was definitely rushing too much and always busy with the next thing. And that's just my personality. But I think I've slowed down a bit. And actually, when you've been really ill, you have to, your body won't let you go that fast. So you have to behave in a slightly different way. I did think before, because I thought the cancer that I was, that I was diagnosed with, I thought it was going to be worse than it was. And I spent, oh, a whole week crying before I got the diagnosis and just thinking about what I wanted to change. And at that stage, it looked as if I might only just have two years left. And I thought about what I would want to do and how I'd want to live in that time. And I think it does make, it makes it different. It makes you different if you have really thought of the possibility of death, which I know I have twice with the cancer and then with the autoimmune disease, which actually did nearly kill me. And that's still quite scary. And I think something happens, it sounds macabre, but I have accepted death, you know, Mm. because it happened so nearly and because it could happen again it might never does that feel liberating i think it means that you don't i don't want to waste time i think it made me much tougher if that makes yeah. any sense i mean yeah i did think i was a wallflower before but i really i really wouldn't take nonsense from anybody that i'm kind of like working for it's like okay we're going to do this and we're going to do that and it will be in on this date or whatever mm. um but it does it just makes you I don't think it's, it's, you're not as easy to push around after you've had two major illnesses.
0: I've just finished this book called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Have you, have you either of you heard of it? Oh, right. I know him, but I haven't, uh, yes, I've seen it. I feel that my world has been kind of shifted a little bit by it. So 4,000 Weeks is, you know, if you live to 80, yeah. that's the amount of weeks that he says that you've got. Wow. So mm. I, we've, we've all got less than that, you know? Um, and what the book does is in a really funny kind of down to earth way, it's not kind of self-helpy or anything. It's really kind of quite, quite down to earth and funny. Helps you realize that actually instead of panicking when you hear that number, you should just use it. It should be a moment of, of, yeah, that's why I used the word liberation earlier, where it just goes, you know what? You literally, like I literally have, if I live to 80 and who know, I mean, come on, like who knows if I will yeah. 2000 weeks or whatever. Well, it just helps you just so many things have happened to me in the last few weeks since I've read that book. And I've got, you know what? I'm not going to get angry about that because I don't want to waste a week's energy on it. Oh, well, no. listen,
2: I came, I came off Twitter what, yes. what, when I came out of um, the hospital of the autoimmune disease. I just thought, um, I didn't even think about the time. It it kind of like sucks up, although I realized when I came off <laughs> over, probably about three hours a day, I would say, which was wow. just ludicrous and um, but i just didn't want to be i just didn't want to be in a place that was that toxic anymore it wasn't directed at me i've never had anybody be awful but i just thought i don't want to listen to it i don't want to see it happening and this is not a good place for general discourse for our culture for any culture and i just thought i had to take myself out of it because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to witness it and I didn't want to be part of it. And I thought if I left, then maybe other people would eventually kind of, you know, leave gradually and Twitter wouldn't exist anymore. You're
0: much more active on Instagram now, aren't you?
2: The thing is with that, with that, it was, I can't remember which lockdown it was, I just thought, oh well, it would be really useful for people, especially if they're having to do stuff from the store cupboards or just stuff with pasta or a tin of chickpeas. If I could go um, and look at all my recipes online on the Telegraph and post a different one every day, people would find it. Uh, I mean, it was initially it was called today's really useful recipe or something like that for difficult times because we were all having difficult yeah. times. Um, and then it just when when it when it ended, I didn't want to I didn't want to stop putting them up because it became a thing that every day I thought the night I usually consider what I'm going to put up the night before. I think about the month, what's in season, what the weather's going to be like. I mean, quite often I check the weather forecast and see if this is going to be the right dish for it. Well, oh, in the summer, that was difficult because sometimes yeah. it was really hot and sometimes it wasn't at
1: all. So sometimes it was slightly <laughs> autumn. So I'd think, oh, right, okay, get my head on around this. I love it. So tell us, we ask everyone who is on uh, Life on a Plate what is your store cupboard ingredient? What is the one thing that the Henry House always has in their kitchen cupboards? My, you should see my store cupboard, though. I mean, honestly,
2: you walk into it. I've got one of those ones that you can walk into it because when I came to this house, I got them to put the. Like, it's not. It's. I wouldn't call it a walk-in larder because it doesn't have hanging hams and all that kind of thing. It's not <laughs> Mrs. Mrs. Beaton esque, but what it does have. Is that it's quite, oh, well, it's quite organized in there. Um, that's all divided, subdivided into, um, areas of the world and the ingredients that you need to do. Oh, I
0: love that. Oh, I love so it. that is very organized. The well Southeast
2: done. Asian section just keeps growing and growing. Mm. And the Italian section, you see, that's interesting because there are not so many ingredients that you need for that. That's quite mm-hmm. small. Um, my Indian section. Is quite big, but it's definitely. If you look at my cupboard, de- definitely Southeast Asia is taking over the world. Definitely. If I had to kind of be stu- kind of like stuck with with kind of like a couple of things, I always have olive oil. I always have butter. I love butter, and you have to have lemons. A kitchen that hasn't got lemons, I mean, you just I mean it's just it's just such a brilliant ingredient because it. It can replace salt completely, or it's the other thing is it's a big, it's a great connector of flavors. Mm. So quite often when I finish, especially a soup, actually, I'll taste the soup and I think, you know, it should be okay. Um, there'll be something missing. It's, it's like it hasn't got a middle, and then I will squeeze some lemon in.
0: I'm really glad you said that, Diana, because I often say, and I've written about it quite a lot, that we've got stuck thinking that salt and pepper are seasoning, whereas for me, lemon juice is season- it's it's one of the seasonings. You yeah, know, I so completely you, you taste something and you 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 do the salt, the pepper. For me, a bit of fat as well, actually, whether that's butter or olive oil and, yeah. um,
2: and, and the, and the lemons. And it works with sweet things as well. Cause sometimes if I'm making, I do this cream with cardamom and rose water in it. And if I add a little bit of lemon to that, you think it would kind of like, it would, it would negate those other ingredients. It actually makes the rose water a bit more floral. Mm. And I think it brings out the cardamom as well without
1: overdoing it. So I think it's quite a miracle ingredient, lemon. I love it. That brings us nicely to a kitchen grill. Diana, have you uh, been told about this? This is I have point. been. I've heard. I'm not going to be able to do it at all because I will go, oh, but on the one hand and on
2: the other <laughs> hand. <I'm> still-
1: <laughs> but that's great. We find a little bit more about you. By okay. Doing We've kind of touched this already. Tea or coffee? Oh my God. I knew you were going to
2: ask <laughs> me that. <laughs> if I really had to choose, it would be coffee. Because not only do I like drinking it, I, I can't, I Actually, most sweet things I don't eat without drinking coffee at the same time. If I'm in a restaurant and they're gonna bring me pudding, I'll say bring a double espresso along with it. Like chocolate. Oh my god. Chocolate cake with some dark espresso. They're just things like that. It really. tastes
1: so much better with coffee. Mash or chips. Mash. But
2: very Mush. buttery.
1: <laughs> very very <laughs> buttery. Nice. Nice. Sight or smell. Oh, my God, that's interesting. It's a hard one. Yeah.
2: Sorry. Smell,
1: mm. actually.
2: Yeah, smell. smell.
1: Lovely. Sourdough or baguette? That's quite hard. I have thought about that a lot, would you believe it? It's interesting <laughs> <amazing laughs> to spend time thinking
2: about. I love them both, but in the end, I would say that sourdough goes with more things. Yeah, But if you're leaving me with just... Which might be the kind of thing that I would have you to take have to your desert effort. island. Well, yeah, a green salad, a, just a green salad with a lovely vinaigrette made really well. Now, mm. that is better with baguette. It is better mm. with baguette than it is with sourdough. But I would choose, for practical reasons, and thinking of how many more things it would do justice to, I would I would go with sourdough.
1: Nice parsley or coriander.
2: Wow. That's hard as well. I mean I love coriander. I have to be careful not to put it in too many things actually. Oh no, I love it. Um but also, you know, there are people who don't like it at all. They taste it in a particular way and it seems soapy to them. So I try not to use it too much. And but parsley parsley's just parsley's so home because it's mm-hmm. so a part of um chicken soup on stock being made and that's what I always smelt growing up. And it's a very useful herb. I think oh i think parsley is probably more useful but coriander is more you know, you know kind of addictive basically. yeah
1: and especially if your southeast asian ingredients are growing well, not, and just, also it's kind of like it goes
2: into indian food it goes in middle yeah. eastern food it go, I mean, it's just like everything
1: it's everywhere and lovely crisps or chocolate crisps we got a favorite flavor oh cheese and onion Nice. Really? Although when I was a
2: child, it was always salt and vinegar. And I used to, when I was little, I used to dip, I loved salt and vinegar crisps dipped in ice cream. So I would try (laughs) to have it so that I could have those both things. We went to the seaside at the same time. So I would kind of like scoop up bits of vanilla with the salt and vinegar crisps. But um, yeah, definitely, um, yeah, cheese and onion. In fact, I can't, I really can't allow myself to buy crisps because I like them too much. Mm. i'm like i have that. to stay away oh. from them <laughs> love it fruit or veg oh fruit i do i absolutely when i've ever kind of you know gone on really really hard diets where i think like the cabbage soup diet or something like that it's not cake that i miss it's apples and oranges and okay. in the summer you know raspberries apricots nectarines i just i love, I love fruit cake. it's yeah. just one i mean The kind of like the categories of food I really love
1: are bread, cheese, and fruit. I love all of them. Mm. I would hate to do without them. And for this, you'd class tomatoes as a fruit, wouldn't you? (gasps) I I would. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I would. Obviously, because I can't do without the tomatoes.
2: Starter or pudding? Starter. Starter is my favorite bit of a meal. I love a starter. And I think that chefs very often have their best ideas. For starters, I mean, I really like puddings and I, I kind of like usually have one, but um, it's the, quite often the most disappointing part of a meal if you're in a restaurant. I don't think they put enough thought into that. But a starter kind of like, also, do you know what? People don't do starters anymore. This may I mean I, I did a whole book. I did eat a peach and it was a book of menus. And, um, there was always a starter because I love that because it's another, it's another set of flavors and textures that you have before you kind of have your main course. I think that people in their twenties don't, don't bring their friends around anymore and offer them a starter. I honestly think it's gone. And I think that's a bit of a pity. Just main course and PUD. Main course and PUD, yeah, basically. But what happens with the main course is quite often I think it's it's too big. So I would like a starter and then a smaller sort of main course and then I'll go into the PUD after what that. What I
0: think is happening with that phenomenon is yeah. that I think that I agree with the starters, but I feel that you have a main and then you have, a, f- have a, a, a few more sides. And I wonder if that's because of a lot more of the Mediterranean, Middle Eastern influences
2: that we've got. Well, also the thing is also if you're doing, if you're doing vegetable main courses, you I need a few they're, things. They're, they're kind of smart. Yes. You need a few things. Yeah. Because it's very, very difficult. I think anyway, to come up with real kind of like stunning main courses that stun in the way that a roast chicken does or a big joint of mm-hmm. beef does. So, you end up with kind of maybe your hero vegetable dish, but you want some others around it. I mean, I definitely cook more extra vegetable dishes now than I I used to. So that might be the reason. Yeah, you're right. Mm, Okay. Um, Spicy or mild? Oh, spicy. And because I've still got this tongue, which gives me some problems. I was talking to Stanley Tucci about it. I mean, he's got more of a reason to be bothered about this because he had tongue cancer and um, he had a terrible, terrible regime um for chemotherapy and radiotherapy to, to to cure his cancer. But he still has trouble with saliva and he still has trouble with heat. And we we mm. were talking about it recently I interviewed him. And we were having, this is really funny to exchange, exchange notes on saliva, basically. <laughs> but um he still finds his tongue sore as well and so do I. But I mean I just won't friends say to me, well, why did you stop eating chilies? And I'd say, but no, because I love them. So I take a painkiller before I go to <laughs> eat. Um, to, uh, the things I do have to avoid though was I find Sri Lankan too much. is um, it's too I, it, spicy. So, too hot, yeah, and it hurts my tongue. I mean, I went there, actually it was in the middle of chemo and I didn't even think twice about it. I went to a lovely Sri Lankan restaurant um, over Christmas, I think it was two years ago and I was literally crying and mm. I kept saying to them, can you bring me some yogurt? I didn't even know that yogurt was a thing to have with the, what I was eating. But then they would bring me a petri dish. And it was like, <laughs> no, I need a bucket. You don't understand. <laughs> because it's the only thing that will, I mean, water doesn't do it, obviously. This it, yogurt has to be the thing. But I'm not, no, I haven't given up chilies at all.
1: And the final question is high tech or a wooden spoon? Oh my God, a wooden spoon. <laughs> of course like I don't
2: even know why people have high tech things they say to me sometimes kind of the things that make kind of like mashed potatoes for you isn't there and heat them up and
1: everything (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: even the stupid questions I'm asking you show you how little I pay attention to these things no I just think that everything that you need basically is in your drawers in your kitchen I mean I have a food mixer and I I have a food processor I have a proper Italian coffee maker which is like having a train set because only my children actually know how to use it. They got it <laughs> to me for my fiftieth birthday. The only thing I've ever managed to do with it is blow it up. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I got it too hot. And then the kind of like the coffee, the coffee grounds went all over the place. So I am, I'm hopeless with machines, hopeless. So yes, give me a wooden spoon any day. In fact, I think the best cakes are the ones that you just mix with a wooden Aww, spoon and yeah. make those yeah. a lot
0: well it was a real pleasure to have you on life on a plate we knew we would laugh a lot and it was very inspiring too i don't know how or where you get your energy from diana but i'm so glad that you still have so much of it because i'm can't wait for north and i'm looking forward to seeing these new recipes too thank you so much it was really fun You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose with me, Yasmin Khan. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okovee, and our guest, Diana Henry. If you've enjoyed our conversation, you can find more like it by subscribing to Life on a Plate wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the series, go visit waitrose.com forward slash podcast.